This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Welcome to Yeal Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and joining me today is a very special guest, Fega Horesh. Fega is a public historian, tour guide, writer, and podcaster. They specialize in American history, but love to explore interesting people from all eras on their podcast, D-Listers of History. They are also an experienced tour guide in Philadelphia, New York City, and Washington, D.C. Fega, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Very excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's good. Didn't have to twist your arm to get you to come on. No, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so we connected on Podmatch when you reached out yep. about discussing a historical event from your home base of Philadelphia. Can you tell our listeners a little more about yourself outside of the bio that I read about you? Sure. So like the bio said, I'm tour guide, public historian, which public historian is basically a very broad, has a very broad definition. It's basically historians who present history to the public. So that can be like a curator or a museum educator, or you could be me and you make podcasts and TikToks. <laughs> <laughs> no shame. No, no shame. Full range. <laughs> What really drives me with, with, I mean, and for everything I do, but like my podcast is included in this, it is helping history be accessible, everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important because history is how we understand who we are. Yes. And a lot of times history is not accessible for a lot of reasons. Not even just because like of institutional access and stuff, although that's an issue in and of itself. It can be like if people, uh, historians are talking about, don't resonate with you. They don't look like you. They aren't from your background. It can be hard to connect. And so I know I really struggle, like I really strive to make sure that I'm thinking about that mm -hmm. when I choose my people. And also it challenges me. Like I just had an author on to talk about 17th century Barbados. And I was like, cool. I don't know anything about this. Read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's, it's, I, I love that aspect of it because, mm -hmm. you know, it can get a little boring being a tour guide on the East Coast, just like Revolutionary War. Here, there, everywhere. Every day. <laughs> like, hey, Ben Franklin, again. <laughs> yep. Abraham Lincoln, again. Like, that's kind of, I went to Gettysburg last year, and it was just like, here's a spot where Abraham Lincoln was. Here's where another thing happened. And it was just like, you couldn't walk a city block without encountering something. So I can imagine. Oh, yeah. No, I love Gettysburg. I call it like the historian's Disney World. I can see that. Yeah. That's a good way of explaining it. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's, and to be clear, there's like real, really good like interpretation stuff happening there, but I, there's just something so kitschy about it mm -hmm. that 
I just love to do. But my favorite is the cyclorama, which is a giant painting that is 360 degrees that they painted. Uh, I believe it's, I think it's the third day of the battle. Okay. Not 100% sure. It's the second or the third day. It's not the first day. I know that. And it's, it's so detailed. And they've got like all the positions, like they, they spoke to like hundreds of veterans to find out exactly what was going on in different places in the battlefield and stuff. And it's so neat because it, besides just being an impressive work of art, yeah. my wife is an artist and she was just sitting there looking at it like, oh my gosh, how, and they did this and how, I forget what it was, but it was some amount of time that it was like, that's ridiculous. That's so short. <laughs> um, yeah. But I also love it because before we had these mediums like podcasts or whatever, this was, this was a way for people to learn about history without having to read dense books or whatever. Yep. And I, I definitely see that sort of thing as, as a connection to what I do. And that's always a fun thing to see. Yeah, for sure. So as we mentioned, you have you also have a podcast. Can you share with our listeners a little more about your show and kind of tell us how you and your co-host came up with the concept? Sure. Uh, so the podcast is called D-Listers of History. And it's a podcast about uh, interesting and important people you didn't learn about in school. And I knew for a long time I wanted to do a history podcast, but I wasn't sure what exactly, you know, I didn't want to go out there and just be like screaming into the void. Yeah. And talking about Ben Franklin like everybody else. And so it went through several iterations before it actually happened. I connected with someone who was going to be a co-host and he wanted to do like a Philadelphia specific podcast. So I did a bunch of research for that and found all these people who I actually ended up covering in a lot of my early episodes who are Philadelphia people. And after things didn't work out with the two of us, when I went to go do my own thing, I thought, well, I've got these people that are like D-listers. Like when I was in high school, there was this reality show called like My Life on the D-List. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always thought that was just a funny like concept because I'm just not into celebrity culture. So I remember thinking it was really a funny concept of that there's these lists of people that are like ABCD. (laughs) Yeah. It's just sort of applied. My first co-host, unfortunately, had to move along, but we still love her very much. But my wife just came on as another co-host, oh. and she's been part of the process since the beginning, really, even though she wasn't on mic because it sort of took over life. So she, yeah. she's always been the one I sort of batted ideas off of. And she's also really helpful for like me knowing what is actually common knowledge. Sure. Because sometimes I think something's common knowledge and it's absolutely not common knowledge. <laughs> I'd be like, have you heard of this person? But yeah, we just basically, we, we cover somebody or sometimes it's an era like the 17th century Barbados one. The unfortunate reality is because of the way history is remembered and written down, at least in the West, we don't have a lot of specific people to talk about. And then even when we do, the information we have on them is very minimal. Mm-hmm. And unless you have the resources to go to Barbados and get those stories, which I do not, you're a little stuck. <laughs> so sometimes I pick an era, but most of the time it's a person. And it's a person who either did something really important or they are like representatives of an important moment sure. in history. That was a really long answer to your short question. <laughs> no, but that's, that's good. I can picture it. I can picture what your podcast is about based off that description. So yeah, I thought you did a good job. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so... Today, I'm going to be taking a back seat as you share with myself and our listeners about something that I had never heard of before, which is the Bible riots of 1844 in Philadelphia. And so I'm going to hand the reins over to you and let you enlighten all of us. 
Okay, great. Yeah, I was excited that you picked the Bible riots because I was trying to think of like, okay, what's stuff that happened before 1900? And yep. this is this comes up in all sorts of weird ways for Philadelphia tour guides. So the Bible riots, they've actually got a bunch of names. Okay. Bible riots is my personal favorite because it's such an evocative <laughs> name. But they're also called Philadelphia nativist riots, Philadelphia prayer riots, which is also pretty evocative. I hadn't heard that one before. And the Native American riots, which is interesting because yeah. today... Native American means something very different than what it meant then. Yes. And this is important for understanding why this happened. So people who thought of themselves as quote-unquote Native Americans were not people who were indigenous to the United States. They were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. <laughs> and they were people who had been born here okay. in the United States. And they considered themselves Native and as like the correct version of American. So they were anti-immigration anti-specifically Irish Catholic immigration. And the thing is, is this came out of a sort of, there, there was a shift happening, especially in Philadelphia, which is, I think, part of why we saw this in Philadelphia. Because Philadelphia was always a place where we had religious freedom. Mm -hmm. William Penn, when he founded the European colony of Pennsylvania, he, he made a charter of privileges. And one of those privileges was religious freedom, as long as you were monotheistic. So it's not what we think of as religious freedom, but at the time, that was revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And it was a big deal for like, I'm Jewish. And so I, we have tons of Jewish history. And it's because it was a place people could go. And I mean, Jewish people couldn't vote. They couldn't hold office, but they could live. And that was a big deal. Yeah, for sure. But from the beginning, I mentioned Jews in that regard, because from the beginning, that didn't 100% apply to Catholics. Okay. So <laughs> it was sort of like religious freedom, except Catholics. <laughs> and they actually had a vote in early Pennsylvania to decide whether or not Catholics counted as monotheists. Oh, wow. And yeah, in the end, they decided they did. When the first Catholic church was built, Benjamin Franklin actually recommended that it be built like kind of back off the street, which it is. So you can go by it and not know it's there, even to this day. Okay. You have to know it's there to get back. You have to like go through like a little like side street and stuff. And then, then there it is which I'm sure is a little bit of a struggle for them now, but it was necessary at the time. And so this is really baked into Philadelphia. Okay. We really love, we love going on about how we had religious freedom and that's true, but also this anti-Catholicism is really baked in. Okay. And we're starting to see a lot of immigration from Germany and Ireland. And it's from like Southern Germany where people are Catholic and people are freaking out because <laughs> they are concerned that these people are not American enough and not only are they not American enough, but they're going to take orders from the Pope and ah, destroy America from the inside. Gotcha. Yeah. So one of the things they really were pushing hard for was a 21-year waiting period for citizenship. Oh, damn. Yeah. Thank goodness that never happened. And when we get to the 1840s, the Great Famine hasn't started yet, but we're in the beginning moments of that sure. and so we're seeing a lot we're going to see much more irish immigration in the future but it feels like a lot to them yeah and we also have our buddy the second great awakening yep and the second great awakening at 1798-1840 and that is like revival meetings that's where you have like the big tents emotional preaching and social reform and salvation by institutions and part of this is seeing religion, seeing religious instruction as being a key part of moral instruction. Mm -hmm. And so public schools taught the Bible. Yeah. In places that had public schools, which is a whole other history. But 
Yeah. And they use the King James Bible because it was seen as like the neutral text. Okay. And how they did separation between church and state, quote unquote, because it was not. <laughs> the separation <laughs> between church and state in their mind was that the Bible would be used as sort of like a, a reading primer, like a practice for reading, which is intense. Yeah. That's an intense <laughs> way to learn how to read. Okay. Yeah. Every time I hear people say like, whenever I hear like, oh, such and such a person was illiterate, except they read the Bible. I'm like, that's pretty literate. It's <laughs> just like the King James. Like, <laughs> Thou art learned, my friend. <laughs> like, you can't apply that to other things because the Bible's hard, man. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a thing. And the idea, though, was if the teachers did not present any sort of interpretation okay. on the text, then it was not a religious instruction. But I think, it, right. So, <laughs> so I'm getting kind of like, okay. yeah, that's really, yeah, that's not really how separation between church and state actually works. Yep. <laughs> but that's where I know where we were. And the fact of the matter was there weren't a lot of minority religious groups out there. And the thought was with the King James Bible, and if there's no specific interpretation being given, if you're Protestant, this is fine. Yep. And most white Americans at the time were Protestant. Yep. But now we have all these Catholics coming in and they're like, um, excuse me. <laughs> so the King James, for those who are unfamiliar, is a terrible translation. It's very poetic. Yeah. But a lot of like the... I hate saying misconceptions because no one really knows what yeah. some of these things mean. Like I, I've been in many, many a Bible study at like my synagogue where we're literally arguing about like one word for like 30 minutes. Like yeah. you go to the original language of the text and you still don't know what's going on. But even within that sort of caveat, the King James is not very good. It yeah. was written for like poetic reasons. It's very pretty. Where we get unicorns from, there's unicorns in there. That's not... What the Hebrew means, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so have you ever, ever wondered? Yes, there's unicorns in the Bible. <laughs> Not the Torah, but you know, King James, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the Talmud too, but <laughs> it's a little, it depends on how you translate the word, which is where all this stuff comes from. And the Catholics in the United States did not use the King James. They used a different translation that not only had a translation, but it also had commentary attached. Because, oh. yeah. Yeah, so there would be all these footnotes and stuff that had, like, the official interpretation of the church. Okay. Because this is the idea in Catholicism, at least at the time, obviously, things changed and so on and so forth. But the the idea was that the church and people who, like, your, your priests and your cardinals and so forth, they're learned. They have spent all this time studying and praying and all these things, and they know better than you what this text means. And so here is how you were supposed to interpret it. And so Catholics tried a lot of different things to not expose their kids to the King James. There was a bishop in New York named Bishop Hughes, who is my favorite because he was just, I, I would have 100% followed his Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> he was a troublemaker. Bishop Hughes, he tried to get the Bible completely removed from schools in New York. Okay. Which to us today is like, Sounds solid. Yeah, solid plan. At the time, people freaked out. <laughs> and, well, first he tried to get the Catholic Bible just for Catholic kids. The idea was, like, the Catholic kids can have the Catholic Bible, the Protestant kids can have the King James, and then we're all happy. But we were not all happy. And so he pushed, say, like, okay, fine, if we can't have our Bible, you can't let's have just your... get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And he like teamed up with the Jewish community because the Jewish community of this time was just sort of like, I, I don't, but none of the Catholics are on this train. Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> We'd love to get rid of the Bible from public schools. Let's do it. And this was, you know, this was big news. And this was the like thing that people are getting stressed about. Yeah. I mean, we're very familiar with this today of there being some, some moral panic that people are just really stressed out about. And they're worried that it's going to like destroy the entirety of what America and yeah. that's where they are. So in Philadelphia, the bishop, whose name I put further down because that makes sense. Good job, Pass Vega. <laughs> I do that so much. It's it's insane. It's Kenrick, I think. Bishop Kenrick. I'm pretty sure it's Kenrick. It'll, it'll come. <laughs> he, he was not like that. He was a little more like, let's just not make trouble. But there was a request to bring these Catholic Bibles into the public schools. Again, just for the Catholic children. They weren't trying to convert anyone. Sure. And this is where we get to May of 1844. So there's two sets of riots that are considered the Bible riots. So there was a political party called the American Republican Party, which was a precursor to the American Know Nothing Party. Okay. To be clear, these, they mean Republican with a little r. So this is not connected to the GOP of today. It's just a, we keep reusing the same words over and over yeah which makes it great <laughs> when you're going back in history and being like it doesn't actually mean that it doesn't mean that yeah we just really like the word republic we're like you find something, you're like wait <laughs> we all love the word republic how often can we use this word for other things all the time <laughs> i do enjoy the name know nothing because i feel like it, it applies to them very well mm -hmm. but like i said they were really anti-catholic anti-immigration if you've seen Gangs of New York, yes. Daniel Day-Lewis, his character was a nativist, a know-nothing, what have you. So the American Republican Party, on May 3rd, 1844, decides they're going to hold a public meeting about this whole issue of the sort of religious teaching in public schools. Sure. And in a, in a choice that just is so, I don't know what the word is. It, it's a choice. Let's just put it that way. It's a choice. <laughs> they decided to have the meeting in the predominantly Irish part of Kensington District, which at the time was a suburb of Philadelphia. About 10 years later, it would become a neighborhood of Philadelphia, which it remains today, but at the time it was its own town. Okay. So it's up in the River Wards District. So if you go where Old City is, it's straight up the river. You've got like Fishtown, Kensington, and all those, all those places. No okay. libs. And so it was a predominantly Irish Catholic part of town, and they were like, this is where we're going to have our meeting. So they posted notices all over the place that said Friday afternoon, May 3rd at 6 o'clock at the corner of 2nd and Master Street. All friendly to the cause are invited to attend. Okay. I always think the cause is always a little like in quotes, terrifying sounding no matter what <laughs> yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be a good cause. So calling it the cause just is always going to give me some pause. Yeah. So they go, they do their thing, and they're, as you might imagine, giving these really awful anti-Catholic speeches. As one does. Yeah. And the Irish Catholics of the neighborhood are, you know, watching this and not not thrilled. Yeah. And so they decide they're not about this happening in their neighborhood. So they rushed the stage and then demolished it and took, like, the pieces of it home to use as firewood. Oh, damn. Okay. Which is a boss move. <laughs> that is a boss move. <laughs> <laughs> I hate this so much. I'm going to burn it in my house. <laughs> <laughs> take your stage and so the nativists were pretty mad about this so they called a new meeting at the same location 
for May 6th at 4 p.m. And there was a much larger crowd on both sides because now everybody's like even more stressed than maybe they were. Yeah. And to make things even more stressed, uncomfortable, what have you, there was a heavy rain. And so now everybody's running around trying to find shelter. And the nativists decide to continue their meeting in the public market house, which is a central site in the neighborhood, which is Irish Catholic. So it's seen as a place that is for the Irish Catholic people of Kensington. Sure. And they forced the Irish Catholics out because there wasn't space for everybody. And they probably didn't want them there anyway because they're, oh, you know, crap. they're gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Irish Catholics come back ready to throw down. They bring bricks, bats, guns. They're not messing around. And there's a scuffle that ensues that includes the a nativist marcher named George Schiffer was killed in the process. And then the nativists, a nativist named Peter Albright shows up with guns and now we're shooting at each other. Sheriff McMichael breaks up the battle because it is a battle at this point. Yeah. At 5 p.m., the nativists decide they're going to reconvene later that night. And they do. And they start attacking Irish homes, businesses, and churches throughout the night. Hmm. Yeah. I haven't heard that before. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and uh, the and it continues on. They just, like, up all night, freaking stuff. And on May 7th, the random speakers now are just giving random anti-Catholic speeches on, like, street corners of Kensington. Like, it's just whoever, whoever wants to have their say, just gonna do it. Like the soapbox type of... Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, it's very much like the soapbox thing. Bishop Kenrick, there we go. That's where I actually put his name down. Good job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> tried to stop the riot by encouraging his parishioners not to participate in it. Well, that's good. At least someone tried to have some reason. Right. And this is part of, I think, what's challenging of this, because on the one hand, it's like, you can't expect the Irish Catholics to just let people come into their neighborhood and say terrible things about them. Yeah. But they did. They did throw the first punch. Yeah. Personally, I think the nativists are responsible. I think there's only so yeah. far you can expect to push people. And I see what Bishop, Bishop Henrik is trying to do here. He figures, like, if I can get one side to stop, maybe all of this will stop. Sure. This is wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. Nativists, are like, <laughs> just they just love stirring the pot. So they decide to have an impromptu parade, which includes things like an American flag that had painted on it. This is the flag that was trampled underfoot by the Irish papists. Nice. Subtle. Yeah. Love it. Very subtle. And they also posted bills saying, The bloody hand of the Pope has stretched itself forth to our destruction. We now call our fellow citizens who regard free institutions, whether they be native or adopted, to arm. Also subtle. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Very subtle. Definitely not terrifying. No. To anyone. And they proceed to just keep on rioting. And in the end, the rioters burned more than 30 Irish homes. An Irish fire company was burned down. And two Irish churches, St. Michael's and St. Augustine's, were burned down. And they finally, the whole, if it all finally stopped May 9th in the morning. And newspapers reported all sorts of different numbers as far as how many people died or were wounded. It seems, died seems to be around 15 to 20 people. Wounded is like anywhere from 50 to 200. So like, I don't know, take your pick. Yeah. This idea of newspapers, like, doing things like fact-checking is, like, a pretty recent innovation. <laughs> I know. I know. I love it. I love when I go back to research something and it's, like, yellow journalism, where it's, like, how sensational oh, yeah. can we make this be? Which is great when you're trying to fact-check things and you're like, oh, well, it's anybody's guess. Yes, this is very helpful. Thank you. Um, <laughs> 
which is actually, it's an interesting thing. This is a little sidebar. It's an interesting thing. I was talking about this on a different podcast. They're asking me about sources and like how to evaluate sources. And one thing that's interesting is that newspapers are considered a source that you can go to, even though we know that they're not useless, but they're, you have to take it with a, a pile of salt. Yeah. Until you get into the 20th century and like not it just in the 20th century, like a while into the 20th century. Yeah. But historically, um, historians have not put a lot of stock in things like oral histories. And this is one of the ways that history is kept very white. Yes. You know, the argument against oral history is that it can't you can't like be sure that it stayed the same over time. Yeah. Like the telephone effect. Like it, how much how much of it has yeah. changed with the tellings. Right. But like, but we're going to be okay with these yellow journalism newspapers where like William Randolph Hart's like sent us to war because he wanted to sell more newspapers. Like, I guess. yeah. And it's, and it's difficult with the newspaper thing because it's like, it seems like everyone had a newspaper. So it's like yeah. one side. So, so it doesn't matter. Each side's going to be biased. So you got to try and figure out where the intersect is, where it actually is the nugget of truth between the two sides. So it's always a fun yeah. challenge when you're investigating. It really is. Yeah. So this thing finally ends. Mayor Scott, who's the mayor of Philadelphia, sets up a force to protect the Catholic churches of Philadelphia. Oh, that's good. Valuables are removed from all the churches, and they did not open the following Sunday just to avoid any provocation, which is makes me really sad. The idea that like gathering for religious purposes would be considered a provocation in of itself. Yeah. And it's it's like religious institutions should be a place where you feel safe and you can practice however you worship, you know. So like yeah. the fact that they had to be like, sorry, you can't do that is really sad. Yeah. To be clear, the not opening on Sunday was a decision made by the bishop. Okay. Um, so well, at least it was the good. city being like, no, you can't do this. Uh, the bishop, Kenrick, was like, let's let's just chill for a day. Yeah. And actually, that was whole Bishop Kenrick's whole thing was like. We're just going to let the law handle this. Like we're going to have faith in the American institutions, which didn't work out super well because on June 18th, a grand jury blamed two things, the, the riots on two things. One was law enforcement's inadequate response and the Irish Catholics behavior, saying that the Irish Catholics were trying to limit the nativist right to free speech. Hmm. We've hmm. heard this before. Right? <laughs> yeah. This also sounds familiar. Okay. Yeah, it just keeps happening. So we get to July. So this all happened in May. Mm -hmm. And in July, we're coming up on 4th of July weekend. In, in anticipation of July 5th, Father John Patrick Dunn of the church St. Philip Murray in Southwark, which is another one of these river communities, sure, was concerned that his church would be attacked during the Independence Day parade, which... That's a fair concern, yeah. Reasonable concern. And he clearly wasn't the only one who thought it was a reasonable concern because he applied for and got an arsenal to protect the church from the governor of Pennsylvania. And the Pennsylvania oh, wow. militia were put on alert. And so, you know, they, they got all these like muskets and gunpowder and stuff like that. And five of the muskets were found to be defective, you know, in normal, just like the government doesn't know what they're doing sort of fashion. Yeah. And so they, you know, the, the church sends the five muskets to get repaired and then they're brought back. But it's through this process of these five muskets moving in and out of the church that nativists notice that there are guns moving into the church and mm. they get freaked out that the church is hoarding weapons. Gotcha. So on July 5th, thousands of nativists show up at the church and demand the weapons be removed. Sheriff McMichael, our buddy from before, who basically just showed up and said, guys, stop. 
He went into the church and he removed some of the muskets and told everyone to go home. They did not go home. Hmm. One of the people who was injured in the May riots gave a stirring speech calling for an additional search of the church. And nativists then went in themselves to search the church and found more weapons and gunpowder, like a whole barrel of it. The sheriff had left that because he didn't. He was worried if he brought up everything, it would incite the mob. I mean, that's a fair assumption. Yeah, so he's trying to make it look like, oh, there's a handful of guns in here, and it's the 1840s, so, like, you know. Who doesn't have doesn't. guns in their house, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, mob sufficiently incited now, so they remove everything. But even though they everything's removed, the crowds show up to the church again the next day. And now the Pennsylvania militia is, is present because of everything that happened the day before. Sure. And tensions rose considerably. The militia being there really brought tensions up, including they, they brought cannon into the street. The militia oh. did. Hmm. Yeah. So it was like, and they were like firing them. Like the, they were trying to clear the streets with, with three cannon. And the military arrested several members of the mob, including former U.S. Congressman Charles Naylor. Oh, which okay. Which I just think is interesting because he was a congressman. Yeah. <laughs> just think that's notable when congressmen are involved in riots yeah <laughs> and by july 7th though everybody's been released except for naylor and <laughs> another mob shows up this time led by the sheriff sheriff mcmichael mr like no guys stop don't do it he decides he's gonna join the mob this time and they demand the release release of naylor and he gets released and then they took the cannon that the militia had rolled out and cannon are like heavy so when you roll them out somewhere you don't really want to like roll them back until you're sure you're done with them yeah so the cannon were still out there so they turned the cannons around and fired them at the church oh jesus okay yeah and more typical things like throwing rocks at it and so forth in the end of all of this 15 people died in the riot at least 50 were injured again the irish catholics were mostly blamed Mm -hmm. for the violence and what I think is interesting about these riots, besides just it's good to remember when these things happen because they're yeah. important, yeah, is it really had a huge impact on how Philadelphia grew and became what it is today. Because, of course, after this, now we're going to have this big influx of Irish immigration mm -hmm. because of the Great Famine. Yes. And the bishops who had been trying to get the King James out of schools, or at least their Bible in schools for their children— Gave up. And they started forming separate Catholic schools. Okay. Yeah, so now Catholic schools had existed in Europe in sort of a different form. Mm -hmm. But this is this was the, like, they were like, you know what, forget it. We can't reform the public schools. We're just going to do our own. And this was a little difficult because there was, like, rules about everyone had to go to public school, but they managed to get that changed so that they could have their own schools. There was also a city ordinance giving the city troops the right to maintain peace in the city. So basically saying that the army can just come in and, like, deal with problems. Throw their weight around to be like, knock it off, you guys. Yeah, which this part always reminds me of during the George Floyd stuff in Philly. We had the National Guard here. And it okay. was so weird seeing, like, Humvees going down the street. And that's when I think of, like, city troops maintaining order. That's what comes to my mind. And this is where tour guides talk about all this. Yeah. It's the Cathedral Basilica of St. Peter and Paul. So the Cathedral Basilica is our cathedral, the mm -hmm. seat of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And it is a basilica because two popes have celebrated mass there. Okay. That's how it becomes a basilica. Well, you only need one pope to do it to be a basilica. We just 
you know, wanted to be extra sure. <laughs> and when they went to build the cathedral, all this had happened. Like, it's the same year they're starting the process of building this cathedral. Oh, wow. And okay. they were really concerned about things like, especially what had happened to, like, St. Augustine's, which was burned to the ground. Yeah, that's fair. So what they ended up doing, and there's a lot of, like, folklore around this, but this part's true because you can walk over there and look at it with your eyes. There are no windows on the bottom level of the cathedral. Oh. So normally, you think of cathedrals, you've got these huge windows. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of it is that, like, you have Gothic style or Neo-Gothic. You've got great height, great light, all that stuff. It's not Neo-Gothic, but it's the same era. And yeah. they just didn't put in windows. And the this is where the folklore comes in. While they decided where to put the windows, because there are some windows, and they're really high up. Mm-hmm. And some of the folklore is, like, they had, like, a rock-throwing contest to see <laughs> how high people could throw rocks. I have not found any <laughs> evidence that that actually happened. I feel like builders probably could figure out how high we yeah. got too high <laughs> yeah but i wasn't there i don't know somehow they decided how high was too high and there are windows way up at the tippy top of the cathedral okay and over time you know of course it's, it's an interesting thing i think looking back because nowadays i think at least people of like our generation mm-hmm. don't see catholicism as particularly divorced from the rest of christianity yeah. I know there are individual places in the country where it still is. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it, it's fair to say that most places it's considered part of like the Christian community, certainly yeah. politically. It yeah, is. it's just like a su- like Christianity is the umbrella and then it's just a subset under the umbrella of Christianity. I wouldn't say it's like its own separate thing. I mean, it's one of the more well-known sects of Christianity, but... I wouldn't say it's its own kind of thing. Yeah. But what I think is interesting culturally is that, especially in places like Philadelphia, the Catholic community did have these really scary moments of persecution. Mm-hmm. Even going to when President John F. Kennedy was elected, they, people were concerned that he was going to take orders from the Pope. Gotcha. So these prejudices run deep. I think it's part of uh, when I used to do student tours, my favorite groups were the like Catholic schools. I think I think we just vibed. Like it just <laughs> we just understood each other. Yep. But yeah, that's the Bible riots. That's crazy. I think one of the aspects that is so crazy to me is that the mayor was rioting to get the congressman out of jail. The sheriff, but yes. <laughs> the sheriff, I'm sorry. Couldn't he just use his executive power to like try and get him out of jail without rioting? Well, I guess because the military had them. So maybe it's sort of like when the oh. FBI comes in and it's like jurisdiction. I don't know. That was my first thought. Like, why couldn't he just be like, let him go? I'm the sheriff. Let's go. <laughs> well, apparently it did kind of work. Yeah. And, and also, like, I can't imagine how scary that would have been for the people in Kensington and Southwark that the sheriff is involved in all yeah. this. Who are you supposed to get to now? Yeah. I equate it to, you know, areas where it's like cartels where like they they own the police you know like who do you go to when you need help when it's it's very obvious that the people who you should be able to go to aren't going to help you at all i appreciate you going through and doing all this research because like i told you before when we were first talking before we started recording like i have never heard of this before and it's a strange concept to me to think that what today is such a huge branch 
of Christianity in the United States, at least, was once like so other, quote unquote, to the people who had been here for so long, the quote unquote natives, that yeah, I just had never thought of it that way. And that it started such open hostilities is just fascinating. Oh, yeah. And part of why I like to talk about things like the Bible riots in particular is it's an example of how in a lot of the things that we're seeing today, we've we've been here before. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make it like that doesn't mean like we should just sit back and be like, whatever. It's yeah, gonna be fine. Because no, it what this was not fine. Like people know it was not fine. However, a lot of the things that we think of as unprecedented are really just unprecedented in the last couple of generations. Exactly. And this can give us a roadmap for what works and what does not mm -hmm. when these sort of anti-immigration forces and so forth start rising up again. Honestly, it gives me a little, a little bit of, um, makes me a little calmer <laughs> about, about things, Yeah, knowing that this sort of thing happened and we still ended up with where we are today. Mm -hmm. And so conceptually, we might get to some utopian future where we actually, you know, have Star Trek or whatever. The thing that is so fascinating about history, and one of the reasons why I love it so much, is because so much of it can be applied to things happening today. It's like people forget that a lot of the things that we are currently experiencing or that we have experienced in the, the very recent past echo things that have already happened. And it's, it's important to kind of know where we've been, to know where we want to go so that we don't backslide. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't really think about when it comes to history. Like they think history is just like, oh, it's boring. It's from the past. We don't need to know about that. But it is important because so much of what we experience today is founded on things that have happened in the past. And the whole point of history is to, to hopefully not repeat some of the mistakes that have been made again. Such as, you know, religious persecution to the point where you're blowing up churches yeah. and, you know, like going and, pe and burning people's houses down. Like, we, people don't want yeah. that, you know. Let's not do that. Like, like, generally people don't like that. So let's not do it again. Well, thank you so much again, Fega, for coming on the show. And before we go, can you please once again tell our listeners where they can find your podcast and when new episodes come out? Yeah, so... My podcast is D-Listers of History. It's on all the various podcatcher things. And you can also go to DListersofHistory.com. There's no hyphen, just straight through. And that has links to where you can download it and social media stuff and all that kind of thing. And we are a weekly podcast now, which is a new thing. Very exciting. Nice. And so every other week, we have these sort of lo longer form episodes where we explore a person. Sure a D-lister, as it were. And on the uh, on the alternating weeks, we have what are called sidebars, which are shorter episodes where we go in and take some sort of current event and look at some aspect of the history that got us to that current event. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it can be something that's like for context. Like we, we covered, it's pretty new. So we covered like Nikki Haley's comments about the Civil War, talked about the myth of the lost cause. And oh, how how this war is taught in different states. And when I couldn't help myself when when the big tunnel the the, the tunnel the tunnel lady seven seventy and yeah 
or not, not the lady, the, 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 the Jewish channel ones. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we talked about the history of the Hasidic movement and who Chabad is and where they came from. Uh, which does not explain the tunnels, to be perfectly honest, but, you know. <laughs> 2024 is the year of tunnels, man. I mean... <laughs> it really is. No, it's really bad that I can't just say tunnels, and it's like, which tunnel are you speaking of? <laughs> <laughs> there is so many now. <laughs> well, thank you again, Fega, for coming on the show. And on that note, I'm Lindsay, and we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. If you want a playlist of all our episodes on YouTube, click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Cramp Word segments. Looking for more content? You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. If you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode, not to mention bonus content and funny memes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at yieldcrimepod, and on Facebook and Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. On TikTok, of course you are. Follow us at Yield Crime Podcast. If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me a Coffee or our Venmo page, both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas, see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly, if you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby, or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes or over on our link tree to get started today. <laughs>